Okay, so you just missed Joyce dramatically singing at me to turn on the microphone. Well, that's what she called it anyway. Um, we are today going to wrap up Chapter 14, which was left over from last week. We've done most of that, uh, but we'll go ahead and finish that and finish the one question that was left from last week. And then we're going to uh, go through um, Chapter 15 and 16. And that sounds like a lot, and it is, but I think it's quite doable given uh, the background we've already piled up and the nature of a lot of Chapter 16, which is basically saying goodbye. So uh, before I dive into it, does anybody need a hard copy of the 15 and 16 segment? Okay. Yeah. Just throw that out at you. And... This is the question, question 7 regarding 14.1 to 4, which we will um, address tonight. Does anybody have any questions on the final study guide, which is entitled the Epilogue, um, chapter 15, verse 14, through the end of the letter? So words, questions, thoughts, things you want to see emphasized, addressed. Whatever. Are there any such? All right. Well, in that case, we'll just go ahead. Now, we made it through part of Chapter 14, but I want to go back to the very beginning for a moment because... There was one question last week, and the question goes back to the previous study guide. It was question number seven. Is that correct? Yeah, what issue is Paul talking about in 14.1 to 4 regarding eating or not eating? And uh, Paul says, now, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So are you to judge the servant of another. To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, there is an issue, there is a, a situation, if you will, that's behind all of this we talked about last week. So just to review, what is that? Does anybody remember? Well, you're very close. It's about eating the meat. So nobody believed that they should sacrifice to the idols anymore. And in fact, they would not do that. That is the very reason most Christians were, were persecuted or killed even. Um, not that they believed in Jesus, but that they would not worship the idols or the gods. Um, but the question is, <clears throat> excuse me, if you, a pagan, sacrifice to one of these idols, and the meat is then butchered and sold at a meat shop in the market, if I know it's been sacrificed to an idol, and I'm looking for meat, can I buy the meat? If you're pagan. Yeah. And if you're a Christian? Well, yeah. Okay. 
there is. Of course you can. There is no such thing as a God, small g, other than Yahweh. So it's a non-issue. But it is an issue. And why is it an issue? Yeah. And and the weaker brother was defined as a weaker brother because understanding is not right. But in this case understanding of what? Yeah. This is somebody who for whatever reason believed it was wrong to do that. Whether it was no, I don't believe in those, but I think you're worshiping those gods or because and, and this in a polytheistic society, this was very common. When people would first come to the Lord, they didn't necessarily believe He is the only God. They just believed He was the greatest, the biggest. Uh, the Old Testament term Elohim, which is plural of God, is does not mean gods alone. So, um, in, in the Old Testament there's a, a tendency to refer to Yahweh as Elohim. And I've seen people use that as uh, a discussion for the presence of the Trinity or the teaching about the Trinity all the way back in the Old Testament. Well, what we call the Trinity existed in the Old Testament, of course, because it's eternal. But, no, that's not what they're talking about. Elohim was a title, and plural was the majestic plural. It's like uh, a queen saying, um, we grant you freedom. Uh, well, there's nobody granting anything except her. So there's no plural to it. But uh, even in English, in, in ancient England, that usage was not uncommon. So that's what was going on. And the word Elohim is the plural, and it would be given to whichever God seemed to be the greatest. So, for example you see the Persian king in Esther referring to Yahweh as Elohim. Not because he believes he's the only God, but because he believes he's better than the other gods because he's seen what he does. And the other gods, he's never seen them do anything. So it doesn't mean he, he stopped being polytheistic. So for the new Christians, those who were still weak in faith, those who still had not grown to a full understanding. There's all sorts of pitfalls to this. And all Paul is saying is, look, don't allow the fact that you know more and understand more to get you to the point of arrogance so that you no longer care what your behavior, even if it's based in knowledge that is true, what that behavior does to somebody who doesn't understand. Take that into account. Because if you create a, what he called a stumbling block. If you create something that causes someone to have a problem in their faith in the Lord by doing that, whether it's maybe they believe that it's okay to worship the idols, or maybe they simply don't understand any of it and their faith is shaken because they believe you as a mature Christian are no longer uh, somebody that they can trust or follow. Paul says, if eating meat causes a brother for whom Jesus died to stumble, I'm a vegetarian. So the principle is very simple. It's not about truth all the time or being right. 
It's also about how does your behavior affect other people. Okay. Now, again, not about them getting to dictate to you what to do either. So, you know, some of you guys aren't, I was going to say wearing blue jeans, but that, that pretty well gets shot. Or, oh, well, um, you, you're not wearing jeans, and I find that offensive. So you should go change the jeans, right? No. I should get over myself. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that's, that, I think that's pretty much what Paul would have said, because I'm making that up. There is no real offense. There is no real risk to my faith, right? But in this case, there was, and in other similar situations, there can be. So we need to, it's not a law, it's simply a principle. We've got to be careful because our, faith, our, our behavior affects other people. Okay. Now, let's pick up with, um, oh, let's see, verse 11, I believe, or 10, <clears throat> because we had already gone through that section before. Um, and I think I'm going to read through most of this without stopping because it's simply going further in explanation for things we've already seen. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. For if because of your of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Very similar statement to that which he made that I just quoted in Corinthians. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who, hold on, scrolling, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make peace, make for peace, and the building up of one another. So you want another principle as to, okay, then how exactly am I supposed to do this, this Christian walk thing if it's not just about being right? Well, what, what is peaceful, what builds up people, as opposed to tearing them down. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. And that, by the way, that last statement pretty much sums up the whole point of this stumbling block issue. If, if Paul's actions tempt someone to eat the meat that's sacrificed to the idol, and yet in their own conscience they believe they're doing something wrong, 
they are doing something wrong. Okay? So there's a principle here that morality is not simply a matter of the objective uh, acceptance or lack thereof of a behavior. It also has to do with the intent inside us. So we do something that in, a, in itself God does not consider to be bad, but we consider it to be bad. The very fact that we're doing that, we're violating our own conscience, means we're sinning. Can somebody think of a modern application of that? Something that might be true today. Not a whole lot today, but I'm sure there are some, particularly in probably the more rural areas of the country, having served in that. And you're zeroing in on something that I think is still an issue today. So we've got dancing, and we've got cards. Now what usually goes in the, in the American ethos or, or uh, the, the mythology of American West with dancing and cards and drinking. Well, the, the dancing is wrong in their minds because that's leading to immoral behavior with the women. But the drinking. Now today, is it sin in and of itself to consume a beer? Okay, so we all say no? Don't know from Scripture, by the way, because there's no beer. It's all a bunch of wine. But, if I drink a beer, and someone watches me drink that beer, and that someone has struggled with drinking themselves, and has come to believe that drinking is simply wrong for them, I'm not even talking about that they go back to drinking and become an alcoholic again, or an active alcoholic again. All I'm saying is they see me drink, and they have a conviction in their heart that that's wrong, but they see me do it. And because of my role here, they sit down, and they say, you know what? I'm going to have a pizza and beer for lunch. But as they do it, their very conscience is saying, this is wrong. What have I just done? I have just tempted him. I have become the tempter. There's another word for the tempter. Yeah. And, and it's not a good thing for me to be. So, even today, I need to be careful of that. By the way, I like beer. I have the advantage of not liking alcohol. So I drink O'Doul's when I drink, because my taste buds are hypersensitive to bitterness now, so it's just not as good as it used to be. But I will not drink an O'Doul's anywhere near here. Anywhere near here. Because I can't count, once I pour that in, 
on someone seeing that in my glass and figuring out, wait a minute, he's drinking non-alcoholic beer. So just in case, there is no way in the world that I will do that here. Even a non-alcoholic one. Now, should you abstain from drinking wine or drinking beer or, God forbid, a shot of whiskey? Come on, folks, it's just kerosene. Why would you do that? Um, never understood that one, honestly. Should you abstain from doing that in public? Well, the answer to that question is, is it causing someone to stumble? Paul didn't say they should stop eating meat. He said they should stop eating it if it is causing someone to stumble. So we have to look around. We have to assess the situation and then make a decision on that basis. But we also have to be careful not to rationalize and go into the, well, I've got a right to, you know. The only thing we've got a right to do, folks, is go to hell. Does that make sense? Does everybody understand? We don't want fair. We don't want just. We don't want our rights. Our rights is a very, very bad deal for us. We want grace. So let's live in grace. And didn't Paul say previously that what we owe to others is to love them? Yes. Well, he said don't owe anything to anyone except to love them. Yes. And that would be a good reason. Yes. Yes. So I'll leave it to you what other applications you might make of that. Um, I think there are. I think um, the very clothes we wear can bear that application, particularly for younger people who are more likely to wear clothing that might be a bit more questionable. You may, you may not like my style, um, even though I am truly a slave to fashion. But um, the fact is, I don't, not too many people have questioned my modesty recently. Um, I can remember, though, as a new Christian when they did. And I had to work through that and ask myself, was there anything wrong with what I'm wearing? And the answer was, sometimes, for this very reason. Because somebody sat down and walked through all of this with me and was like, okay. All right. Never did the Speedos, only because there's sharks in water. Even in Nebraska, I still think they might be there. So... Stay away from water. Okay. Chapter 15. Now, we who are strong, and, and he did, we, okay, so he's identifying himself there, and he is including in that everybody who, like him, understands what he just said. We ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. To his edification. What is that word? Edification. What does it mean? What does the English word mean? Because this is one of those situations where the, the Greek word actually means the English word. To, to build up. An edifice. A structure. A building. So an edification is to make a building. Okay? Except, obviously, it's a metaphor because we're talking about that with humans. So we're building into humans, not tearing down. So the question we all have to ask is, what are we doing? What, what's the result of our actions, our words, our attitudes on other people? Is it building them up or is it tearing them down? 
Okay. And if it's not building them up, Paul says, well, then start that. Because that's what we ought to do. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. By the way, did you catch that little pearl that Paul just wrote? For those particularly, those Christians who do not pay attention to the Old Testament, and I plead somewhat guilty, I certainly pay more attention to the new, way more attention to the new than I do the old. Whatever was written, he says, in earlier times, now he's writing as he's literally writing part of the New Testament. So what is he talking about? The Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament, which already existed as a collection just as we have it both in Hebrew and for for those who uh, were not as good in Hebrew, in Greek. Whatever existed in earlier times, whatever was written, was written, he says, for our instruction. That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and that's almost like a a wrap-up benediction that you got there. And then he moves on. And this is Paul. He'll make this kind of a wrap-up statement. And then, now, because of that, (laughs) so, therefore... Accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth, excuse me, the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Who's the root of Jesse? Okay. When they heard that originally, who was the root of Jesse that they would have thought of? David, son of Jesse. But of course now, in the Messianic tradition, the Messiah was to be, in essence, the new David. And he was going to rule over the Gentiles. Does does God rule over, does Jesus rule over the Gentiles? It's a trick question. (laughs) Has this passage been entirely fulfilled? No, but will he? So we just read, every knee will bow. Every tongue. Because there will be a time when there will be no one believer. (laughs) Because the Lord comes back and the events following his comeback are not secret. And they're not hard to understand. 
And when that happens, and when we, whether we have died and have been raised to judgment, or he comes back before we die. That's my vote. But so far it hasn't happened. It doesn't matter whichever way all of us stand before God. All of us see Jesus. Every knee shall bow. I've shared this before. I don't know. I, I honestly cannot imagine me bowing my knee. It seems so controlled and so uh, formal that I honestly believe I, it will be beyond my control when I see the Lord. I'm just going to hit the dirt. And, I, and it won't be hitting the dirt in, in fear. It will be probably the most joyous thing I've ever done. And I can see others doing the same. But I can see people who have denied him their whole lives hitting the dirt out of abject terror. Now what? So yeah, there will be a time. The, the, the Lord will reign over all the Gentiles and, and him shall the Gentiles hope. Because it's the only hope. And by the way, that would be us. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying that is to fill you in faith. Because remember, the word faith the very same word as believing. Concerning you, my brothers, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. By the way, did anybody pick up the typo? Yeah, the typo was that the study guide beginning with verse 14 should not have a word from verse 1. And if you looked it up, you found it does not have a verse or a word from verse 1. And so, if you were thinking like I do, which is probably dangerous, then you would have said, hmm, but the verse 1, so to speak, of the study guide would be verse 14. Wonder if it's there. And you would be right. Okay? So you are also able to admonish one another. The word is nisteto. And it means to have a meeting of the minds. Mind, literally to mind to one another. Nus is the word mind. Um, does anybody remember what that word means? Um, Ne Omicron Ypsilon Sigma. Not remembering? Okay. There's so many words in the Greek that have to do with the internal processes of humanity, and they overlap very significantly. So mind, for example, and heart are not that separate. There's an overlap. You know, one is there, one is here. Add spirit. Overlap. Add soul. See, overlap. The difference in this case is mind focuses on the mental process but includes everything that is internal. See, he, soul, focuses on 
the identity, that which makes this person a different person than that person, but includes everything internal. Cardia, what is that? Heart. And has pretty much the same connotation as we use today. So it focuses more on uh, the, the passion or the feeling. But it includes, and we've got to keep that in mind, because the Greeks were not into systematically separating things as much as we are. Now, compared to the Hebrews, absolutely they did. But they still had lots of overlap for those words. So this is the nous part. And so those things that are inside you, when you see somebody doing something you know is wrong or needs to be corrected, he says, I've got full confidence. You can go over there and meet their minds and give them what they need to understand. Do we do that? Well, some of us do and some of us don't. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Ministering as a priest, the gospel, excuse me, as a priest, yeah, ministering as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It, it sounds a little awkward in English, but remember, he's calling up the imagery of the priest making a sacrificial offering. So what is his offering? What is he presenting to God as an offering? Uh, no. In, yeah, the Gentiles. My offering of the Gentiles. So Paul sees himself in that role and the sacrifice he's making or the offering, if you will, that he's making is to present to God the Gentiles because the ministry that he was entrusted with was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles in hopes that they may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which is a word play. Do you get it? Think of the, think of the words that we've already looked up and the English phrase sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Anybody get it? What does the word sanctified mean? Set aside is part of it. Made holy is the full. Set aside and kept pure. Those are the two aspects of holiness. Or to make something holy, or to use the modern high church term, consecrate. Right? But the Greek word for it is still holy. So in essence, he says, holied by the Holy Spirit. Everybody else got it. We, we don't because we're not reading that language and seeing the same word pop up in both of those terms. But they would. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached or proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So, 
I'm going to brag a little bit here, but I'm only bragging about what God has done through me. So you know, he works the through me thing in, yeah. Paul is not... Paul, there's times when Paul seems like the most humble guy in the world, and then there's times when he just undoes that. And there are those who have, who have speculated that the, quote, thorn in the flesh of Corinthians, um, almost everybody believes that's a metaphor. So lots of speculation, what was the thorn? And many people believed it was his pride. I have no idea, but I can see it. Now, at times, and by his own writings, at times, and at times, apparently not. But he says, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders. So we have three words used together that are really kind of fun. The word power. Does anybody know what that word is? It's not why I asked you to look up, but... Modern pronunciation would be dynamis. Um, Erasmian dunamis? Dunamis? Yeah. And from that we get dynamic, dynamite, dynamo, all referring to power. Remember when dynamite was first invented, it was the most powerful explosive anybody ever knew. Hence the word dynamite. It's in power that there were signs and wonders. Now these are two synonyms. And by the way, they're almost always used together in the New Testament and frequently in other literature, not just Christian literature. What are those words and what do they mean? Signs and wonders. about something that is in the New Testament I think always miraculous but the, the particular of it the reason it's different than other words is it is explicitly given to corroborate something so picture the word itself it's like a sign here this, be, this action that God is doing that nobody else can do is like a giant sign that says listen to him so he raises somebody from the dead and everybody goes, whoa. Only God could have given him that ability. We better listen to him. And that was precisely the reason for pretty much all the miracles. Now, then you've got this other word, wonders. Okay, and what does that mean? It, it, it does mean a miracle. By all of these words, can be translated miracle. So, what's the emphasis that makes it different from Simeon? History. History? Oh, mystery. 
So explain what you mean. It, it can't be no good. It can't be no? Okay. Can't be explained other than okay. Okay. And and by authenticates it means not like me coming along saying, I like that. That's really good. Good job. Only God can do this. It definitely points to the miraculous, and by miraculous we typically mean that which is outside the normal laws of nature as we understand them. So as one of my professors used to say, it's just God doing his thing. Okay? But it's no people doing their thing. It's not something that a person can come up with. It has to have God's power to do this. And the, the emphasis of it is exactly what the word connotes, wonders. It is that which evokes awe and reverence in the beholder. And it can be the very same action or the very same deed as the sinel, the sign. It's simply looking at this from the, uh, the effect rather than the substance of it. And I think that's true of, of all, of any if not all, of the um, synonyms for, mir- for miracle or miraculous. Those of you who took the Greek class last, uh, last year, there's a resource that I introduced called Trench, Trench um, RCH Trench, Synonyms of the New Testament. And he's got a very interesting article on this. It, it will tax you a little bit as it goes in and out of various foreign languages, quoting things, but there's enough in the English uh, and the Greek that you, you get pretty clearly what he's saying and the differences. So, if you're interested, it's not a bad resource to look at. Okay. Let's see. And thus, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Now, Paul just gave you a little insight into his personality and what he considered his calling. He did not see himself called to reinforce the work of someone else. Even as he himself taught in Corinthians, he's part of a team, a farming team, if you will. But which of the, of the team members is he in that analogy? As a farmer... If, if all those tasks are farming, what task does he do? He wants to be the planter. Notice, the planter. I don't want to plant seed where seed's already been planted. I want to go where no one has heard. And that's what we see in what he does in the, in the book of Acts. Well, in this case, going to Gentiles who have not heard yet. Because by this time, um, right, right, right. Well, but not to the Jews at all. Because he saw that his ministry explicitly was to the Gentiles. Um, although, that said, where did he start? Every new town, where did he start? He'd go to the synagogue. 
Now, within a few years, he'd go and get booted out pretty quick. But he'd still try. And he's already explained why. He has a passion for his own people. But then he goes to the Gentiles. And he wants to go to Gentiles no one else has gone to already. So Apollos has already been there. Don't want to go there. Barnabas already been there. No, don't want to go there. I hear don't want. I mean, you can interpret his words how you wish. Um, I don't think there's a problem there. Because I think when we're doing what God has built us to do, we want to do that. It's like the old thing about if you're a train, you want to, you want to go on tracks. Because if you're a train not going on tracks, you're a train wrecking. So you want to be on the tracks. Because that's what you were built to do. Paul, by this time, had enough understanding of himself that he understood what he was built to do and wanted to do that. Now, he's going to, in a little bit, um, explain a little bit more of that, and we're going to even hear where he wants to go. But 1522, for this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had, oh, it's right there, I'm sorry, and since I have had for many years a longing to come see you or to come to you whenever I go to Spain. Now, Paul wanted to go to Spain, which is exactly where Spain is today. Basically, the, the big part of the Iberian Peninsula. It was a, uh, a Roman province. It was considered the end of the world, pretty much. The only thing worse is if you went around it and north to, like, England. That, now, that's really out there for the Romans. But Spain was out there. There are even uh, accounts of people, and some believe Pilate even experiences, being exiled as a punishment to be a, a governor or another official in Spain. Kind of like, yeah, you want to be a governor? You're going to govern Siberia in the old days of the USSR. Uh, it was that kind of a thing. Paul wants to go there. For I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So, here's what I want to do. I want to go where nobody has gone yet, and apparently that was Spain. And I want you to help me. Yeah, this is a very bold and smooth missionary appeal. And there are those who have said that the entire letter to the Romans was written explicitly for that purpose. That Paul was writing a group of people who he had never personally met. There are some there, but he'd never been to Rome. And he's writing them to say to them, or he'd, well, yeah, he'd never been to Rome to see the church at that time. He's writing them to say to them, here's what I believe. Here's the facts of the gospel. So you'll know that what I'm teaching is real. And then in the end to say, so, now, when I'm done in Jerusalem, I'm coming back through. And what I want is to be helped on my way to Spain by you. And so we'll work together. We'll be partners. Nothing dishonest about it, but very definitely he's making that kind of an appeal. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. The word minister, anybody look it up? 
was a Greek word. The old English word minister is always servants, but there's two and sometimes three words from the Greek that can be translated that way. And they have a different connotation. Well, denotation. Okay, this one is letrgeo. Okay? The, the one we get liturgy from. It has explicit spiritual connotations. So, he says, the Gentiles minister to the Jews. But he uses that word. And that word is not a word we use of one another. Because it is... The Gentiles are presenting their worship to the Jews. No. The Gentiles are presenting their worship to God by helping the Jews. These are the people of the covenant, and they're people who were poor, and they were people who were going through, many believe, a famine at this time. And Paul conducted a, uh, actually a couple of times, uh, a, more or less a famine relief tour, collecting money throughout the Mediterranean world, taking it back to help provide famine relief for the Christians in Jerusalem. And he says to the Gentiles, it's their, it's their normal stuff, it's their natural stuff, because as the Jews serve them by doing all the stuff that we've already seen and, and being the people who brought the law and the people who brought the Messiah and therefore led to the hope of the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles can kind of pay some of that back in material ways. All right. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness and blessing of Christ. Now, by the way, how did he finally come to them? Do you remember? Yeah. In a prisoner. But, as a prisoner of his own will, so to speak, because Paul was, was imprisoned in Rome twice that we're aware of, one from Scripture and one from history. The historic one was just a few years after the one in Scripture because the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written primarily as an apologetic for his appearance before the emperor. Here's, here's what all this is about, so you'll know. And it's thought to have been early 60s A.D., where Paul was stuck in Caesarea in Syria and says, enough of this. Uh, they even said, you know, it, it even says they were keeping him around, hoping that somebody would offer him a bribe, finally. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. Well, the Roman citizen, he could do that. And they were then bound to ship him to Rome, and he would then stay in Rome until Caesar got around to him. Uh, we hear about him being in chains and suffering, and yeah, no, not so much. Uh, Caesar didn't have a clue who he was and didn't care at this point. This is not a high-security guy. This is a guy they would just as soon have not done that so that they wouldn't have to mess with him. Now, the second imprisonment, that's different. Different Caesar, different circumstances. And that one was targeting him and ended up with his death. So that one, absolutely, he was in chains. This one, he was on more what we would have called house arrest. Probably, by the way, had to pay for it himself. 
um, why would Caesar pay the, the, the bill for him saying, I, I appeal to Caesar? Why would Caesar want to do that? So he was there. He finally got there. But he got there by appealing a judgment that should have been judged for him two years earlier and appealing that to Caesar explicitly to have the opportunity to go to Rome and have the opportunity to present the gospel to the people in Rome, including, as we find out in another place, to the royal family. So apparently that worked out pretty well. To the best of our knowledge, he never made it to Spain. We have zero from scripture and zero from history indicating that Paul ever made it to Spain. Chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. A couple of interesting words there that help us understand a little bit about Phoebe. She is a servant of the church in Sincrea. What is that word? Servant. Okay, once again, though, that's an English word, so what's the word being used? Because all of these words, servant and minister in English, are always synonymous. They can be used interchangeably. So what word, for example, was it? Uh, Liturgia? Does anybody know? What is another word for servant that we've covered in the last few weeks? Deacon. Well, doulos is yet another. Uh, more often translated either slave or bond servant. Because it is different in that regard because once you make that decision, it's no longer voluntary. You're stuck for that period. Diakonos, or English deacon. And what was a deacon in the church? says she's a deacon of the church. Actually, it's gender feminine, so it's, she's a deaconess. Okay, there you go. Initially, the apostles, acting as elders, appointed deacons to carry out the, excuse me, more mundane tasks, if you will. Uh, by mundane, I mean the ones having to do with earthly things, while the apostles focused on what they called the ministry of word and the prayer. But many of us would be very enthralled with it, because what the apostles did is handed over all the bags of gold they had and said, here, go deal with that. In the world's eyes, it's like, whoa, these guys are, these guys are CFOs at least, Right? So a, a deaconess was simply a female deacon, somebody who had been delegated a ministry or a responsibility by the elders and given the authority to carry it out. So she was a leader in the church and somebody we don't know what specific delegation was given to her. Only It only says that she was a deacon or a diaconess. Now, she also was a helper now, for those of you who have been in some of these studies before, when you see the word helper, what word might immediately come to mind that I've asked you to look up roughly 200 times? 
All right. Or, or in this case, parakletes, the noun form. Parakleto, uh, to be called alongside, that's the verb. Parakletes, the one called alongside, helper, um, counselor, um, whatever other word. Excuse me. Which is also the word given as a name or a title to the Holy Spirit by Jesus. Excuse me. That's not the word here. Did anybody look up the word here? Um. Yeah, you're using the lexical form. That's, I'm, I'm staring at that going. So, in this particular place, it's prostasis. Okay? Did anybody else see that? Prostasis. Now, pro. Stasis. What, what, is, the, what is the English word? Stasis. Stasis. If you're in stasis, what, what, what is with you? If something is static, yeah, it's not moving. It's standing. STA, by the way, not, not a coincidence. So, standing for someone, to stand up for someone, to be um, a patron, a benefactor, somebody who steps up and vouches for or does whatever else that person needs to do, but in the apparent situation where they are in unequal setting, where one, like the benefactor, right, benefactor almost always indicates the benefactor is in a better position than the recipient of the benefits, right? So I'm, I'm a guy who's poor and I need help, and a benefactor provides that help to me. That's the word being used to describe this woman. So she's a woman of stature. She's a woman of means. She's a woman everybody looked up to, and she helped people with that. She didn't use it for her own pride. She used it to help others, including, at least in one case, that we have no idea about, because this is the only time she's mentioned in Scripture, but including Paul. And then, excuse me, verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is short for Priscilla. John and Johnny, except Priscilla actually would be the more formal version of it. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, what do we know about Priscilla and Aquila? They were, as, as well as Paul, tent makers or canvas workers, or probably made a lot more sales than tents when they were in Corinth, but same basic skill, which is how they met. What else do we know about them? Yeah, they were teachers. Their, their particular ministry with him were to teach. And they have one very famous student, 
a guy who was a, um, a follower of John the Baptist. Now remember, mass communication, the Internet, the speed, didn't have that. So he's out traveling around the Mediterranean world telling everybody all about John, well, telling the Jews, all about John the Baptist because John was a prophet to the Jews and proclaiming repentance and the baptism of John. One problem with that. It's a bit outdated. Because John said, no, it's not about me, it's about him. So, Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside. And in essence, they update him. You need to know what else happened. And Apollos became one of the most famous teachers and evangelism, evangelists of the early church. Probably short of Paul himself in the North Mediterranean, the most famous. To the point where when he writes his letter to the Corinthians, Paul acknowledges the divisions going on. And he says, yeah, I get it. Some of you are saying, I am from Peter. Others, I am of Paul. Others, I am of Apollos. And then he blasts them all for doing that. But Apollos, is, in that case, now has the same stature as Peter and Paul. So that's how big he was. It was these two who set him straight and relaunched him. There's one other thing you get from this passage that's fairly interesting. Well, that was another thing, but yes. Um, we don't know that, by the way. In other words, the book of Acts tells us a lot of specific incidents, but we don't know which one he's referring to. When exactly did they literally risk their necks? And I, and I believe it is literal, given the fact that that happened to Paul numerous times. Um, they, by the way, were originally refugees from Rome because, I believe it was Claudius, had proclaimed all Jews and Christians, basically all the atheists, had to leave. He wanted to just clear them out because the gods were not happy with Rome for allowing them to stay there and disrespect the gods. So he exiled them all. And that's why they were traveling around in the Middle East instead of being in Rome when Paul met them. But there's one other thing that often gets missed. In Greek, word order is significant. In many languages, by the way. I would think almost any Mediterranean language. And what do you see about word order here? She comes first. That doesn't happen. Wives are not listed first. But she is. All sorts of interesting discussion and debate about why. And the Bible doesn't say. So if you ask me what I know about why, what is my answer? But if you ask me what I think, the only reason somebody in this circumstance would be listed first is if she were the one everybody knew. If she were, if you will, the more public face the more famous one. And then it would be natural to list her first because people know her and he's just her husband. 
And that's pretty much true. So I believe what we see here is one of those rare instances where even in, in a society that is dominated by three cultures, all of them patriarchal, a woman is seen as dominant, if you will. It's probably not the right word, because it has nothing to do with the marriage. It has to do with the presentation to the world of the two of them. But in that sense, dominant over the man. Okay. Greet Eponidas. No, I'm sorry. Also greet the church that is in their house. Then greet Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. That's, that's a big deal. First convert to Christ from Asia. What's Asia? What we would know as Turkey. So when Paul and Barnabas first went on their missionary journey and took the gospel into the Gentile lands, then Asia, or Asia Minor, the Roman province of Asia Minor, that's the first place they went. And here's the guy, and we don't know this from anywhere else, here's the guy who was the very first person to come to the Lord in all of that area. And apparently he's in, now in Rome. That probably does absolutely nothing for us at all, except it's kind of fun to just see that. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, and also were in Christ before me. That's interesting. Now, he just said two things that are kind of interesting. Andronicus and Junius. Uh, Junius, by the way, there's some question as to whether that's a male or a female. Um, the, the, the spelling of it could be both. And there are many who believe this is an example of a female apostle. But it is definitely an example of two apostles, because he said, who are outstanding among the apostles. And it does not mean outstanding in the opinion of. That's not the wording. It means they belong to that group. So what does that tell you about what an apostle is? Apostles are messengers. Yeah, they're delegates, they're messengers. Um, they're a commissioner or missionary. Someone given a commission and set out to do it. Literally, they're, they're people sent. Apostelo, to send off, send away. And so in the New Testament, there were many who were apostles. But we have a tendency to talk about apostles this way. Now, they did not, because remember, there were no capital, well, there were, there were no lowercase letters in Greek of this time, until Greek. So instead... Every letter was a capital, and so that designation that we make, capital A and cap and small a, they couldn't make. So instead they do it by context. And when you see it here in a small a, you're seeing the translators make a judgment based on context. And what they're saying to you is, these are not obviously two of the twelve. Right? So when we see the big A, we're talking about the original twelve, we're talking about Paul, 
And then, depends on how you see that little incident with Matthias, we may or may not be talking about Matthias. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about with Matthias? Peter says, there's got to be 12 of us, let's make a 12. When everything that follows seems to indicate, no, that's Jesus' job, not yours, Peter. And that would fit Peter's personality perfectly. So, you know, my tendency is to believe that Matthias, this is not to put Matthias down in the least, not suggesting for a minute that he's not way above us in terms of his dedication. Maybe he was. Unfortunately, we know virtually nothing about him other than that. But Paul is absolutely considered one of the apostles. And there does seem to be an an issue with the twelve. These are anybody other than those sent out with that mission. Barnabas, for example, absolutely was an apostle. Mark absolutely was an apostle. Timothy was an apostle. Um, Silvanus or Silas can be spelled uh, Latin or Greek. Uh, both, both renderings of the same guy. He was an apostle. And we know he was, uh, some of them because they're called that, and for others simply because they did that. Barnabas did exactly what Paul did. They were a partnership. Um, and he says they were in Christ before me. So these are people who knew the Lord and knew the Lord before Paul stopped persecuting the church. That brings you back quite a ways. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved. Notice how he keeps saying my beloved. There, there are people today who want to make something out of that that is the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Well, maybe not. It's, it's right up there, though. Um... And it's all based on the English. Can anybody guess where I'm going? What is the nature of Paul with these people? And there are those who would teach today that Paul was himself open to homosexual behavior and that these were all lovers. Beloved. My beloved, my beloved, my beloved. What's the word? Beloved. Anybody want to guess? Well, that's the English. But that's, yeah, beloved means loved by. But what's the Greek word? If you would do your homework, instead of sitting there fuzzy. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Agape tone. Oh, uh, Agape. Yeah, okay. Which has zero to do with affection, much less sexual attraction. So nobody who has any understanding of the language would ever go there. So anytime you hear that... Yeah, and, and words bigger than that, unfortunately, but somebody just unmasks themselves as totally, totally ignorant. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet, yeah, Narcissus, I like that one. That was an, actually a common Greek name. 
I don't know that I'd want it, but hey. Yeah. Uh, that's what the word means. Yeah. Yeah. Singeni. Sing together, Geni, for Genesis, uh, born. So, yeah. The, the connotation, not the connotation, the denotation is of the same blood. So, those two, when he says my kinsman, in all likelihood means uh, brother, cousin, probably would have said brother if it was not brother, or if it was brother. So cousin, uncle, something like that. Um, obviously what I'm doing now is just reading through all of these things, and these are, there's some interesting things here. You get so much of these little personal things from Paul about himself and these others. Um, Greek Trifania and, excuse me, Trifina and Trifosa. Workers in the Lord. Greek Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greek Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Also his mother and mine. Now, in that case, that is very unlikely to be truly his mother or biologically his mother. Uh, that's a phrase that would have been used more for a woman who is like a mother to me. Greek Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes. What would it be like to be a Christian? In the Greek world, re- worshiping all of these guys, these different gods, with a name like Hermes or Apollos, for that matter, it had to be a little bit weird. Yeah, Hercules was supposedly half god. Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren with him, Greek Philologus and Julia and Nereus. Nereus. I want to I want to pronounce that in Greek instead of English. Oh well. And his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ greet you. So this is classic Paul. He's he's starting to wrap it up. There's a whole lot of people there he does know, even though he's not been there. So whoever's reading, you know, greet. What, he, what, what that means, greet this person, probably not so much this is going to an individual and asking them to go say hi as much as that was simply the, coll- the colloquium for, hey, Adronicus, <laughs> hey, bud, long time no see, that kind of a thing, okay? Now, I urge you, brothers, urge is what? Now it's... See, now you're not sure because that other word was thrown in there. Well, I'm sure you looked them all up. Whenever you see urge, what are the odds that were, what, what, are the, what is the word the odds are that is the word? Yeah. Well, again, partly, you, you keep going backwards to me. That's, now it's the verb. Parakalo. Yes. Okay. Yes. Exactly. I exhort you. I encourage you. I stand with my arm. The, 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 the denotation is not just the encouragement, but it's a very personal and intimate encouragement. It's something you do standing next to someone with your arm around them, not writing a letter from across the, the Mediterranean. So Paul is, is 
He's voicing an intimacy with these folks. He's never met most of them. But because of who he is and who they are, kind of presuming on that intimacy. I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Very early on, there are many, many false teachers. And it was a major problem. Paul ran into it all the time. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Is that where that word is? Hold on. Okay. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So, Paul, by the way, apparently believed in Satan as an individual. If you read the rest of his writings, you'll see the same. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Again, there's that word. Now, verse 22 is a fun one. I, Tertius, come on, scroll. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, what in the world did he just say? What does that mean? Yep. And that's exactly what it means. Literally, I write this letter. He does not say, I composed it, I thought it all up. I write it. He was an amanuensis, a secretary. Um, Actually, not the most prolific one of the letters we know of Paul. Probably uh, Silas would have that honor. Um, But Paul, another one of the traditions for his thorn in the flesh was bad eyesight. And uh, so frequently there's this tradition that the reason he used somebody to do this wasn't uncommon anyway, by the way, for a leader to dictate to somebody any more than it is today. But one of the reasons that is often cited is Paul simply couldn't write that small. He had to write very big so he could see what he was writing. So if he was going to write a normal letter, he had to have someone else do it. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cordus, the brother. Now, by the way, host to me? Now? Me who? Oh, yeah, exactly. The, the convention would be that, yes, he just sort of slid that in. Um, that would be the norm. It would be like a parenthetical note that a secretary might write today, uh, excuse me, an admin uh, might write today of, hey, I'm actually writing this. Good to see you. Or say hi to everybody, you know. And then going back to the dictation. So probably this is now Paul again. Um, And certainly as we get to the end, seems to be. Uh, parenthetically or bracketed, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, be with you all. Amen. The amen means? Okay. And what are the brackets about? 
And why? Why why do we know that or think that? Where did I get it? Did I make it up? Maybe. So the New American Standard does a pretty good job of footnoting and helping you in ways like this. So if you look in their translator's notes, or in this case, my text at least has a footnote to this, that the bracket indicates that the earliest manuscripts did not have that line in there. Now what that means is we don't have the original document that uh, Tertius actually physically wrote. Personally, I think that's very intentional on God's part because look at what people do with relics today. If we actually had a document, a piece of paper, or a scroll that we knew was Paul's first original letter to the Romans, what do you suppose people would have been doing with that for the last 2,000 years? In all likelihood, they would have worshipped it. There are other supposed, never a whole document, but scrolls, pieces, and so forth. And that's precisely what people do. And it's a very superstitious thing. Personal belief, and nothing scriptural to back this up, but personal belief is God absolutely refuses to allow that to happen to anything real. Which means that if you find anything that someone's saying is that, odds are astronomical that it is not. And there is zero evidence, by the way, for any of that that has been claimed, literally any, being real. Literally zero evidence. So don't, don't fall into that. But what this is simply saying is those early manuscripts were reproduced by being copied. There was no mechanical copy. And so they would be copied, and the copy would be copied, and the copy would be copied, and the copy would be copied. And for hundreds of years, every manuscript you've got is that. With, by the way, an amazing consistency. Have you ever played post office or, uh, t- uh, not post office, uh, telephone? And you know that, you know, how easy it is that you get 12 people together and a message changes pretty radically. And yet for hundreds of years, the, the document is almost identical. And the almost part, none of them, none of the changes, none of the questionable passages have anything to do with any major doctrine of the faith. It's, it's astounding. C.S. Lewis was a professional philologist, he, looking at manuscripts of ancient documents and so forth. That was his job. That's, he was a professor of that. And he was dumbfounded at the consistency and the, um, the amount of documents to tell us that what we've got for the New Testament is indeed what was there. Now, if we've got all of these, say for five centuries we've got documents, and then all of a sudden, 500 years later, documents start including this line. What does that say to you? Yeah. Odds are amazingly high that it simply wasn't there in the first 500 years, and then someone added it. Maybe they added it like we do, writing something in our Bibles. Or maybe someone just literally thought, God wants me to put this in. I don't know. Um, There's a number of places like that. New American Standard identifies them for you. 
so you know when you're looking at one of those and when you're not. And obviously, all of this up to this wasn't like that. The ESV version goes from verse 23 to verse 25. I mean, it's there is no 24. Yeah. Yeah. Most most translations will either do what New American Standard does, or they'll skip it, but then footnote it so you can. If somebody says, well, but my Bible says, then you can look into the footnote and you can see what's going on. Um, I have a book that is, if I might say, just extremely academic. So if you're not into that kind of thing, this would be great if you have insomnia. It will help you no end. No chemical by, uh, um, side effects or anything. Uh, but it documents and goes through the particulars of each of these, um, looking at the text and saying, okay, so in this point, here's, here's the documents that do have it. They go up to such and such a date. Then at such and such a date, this document we find has this. And it just gives you all the specifics for those who are really interested in that. So, uh, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. By, by the time the text uh, that we're looking at that this is translated from was put together, pretty much everything had been discovered. So, I, I'm, I mean, you say ever, again, this is, higher criticism is not my specialty. That's what this is called, um, textual criticism. But I don't remember anything like that. And, you know, whenever you see these things, I, I see them a lot on TV. You know, new document discovered. Yeah, that document was discovered 1,500 years ago. So I suppose it's new, I mean, compared to 2,000 years ago. But uh, if National Geographic particularly is involved, don't believe a word they say. I, and I, I hate saying that because National Geographic used to be, I think, a reputable periodical. But when it comes to things like this, I would go with National Enquirer first, literally. That's how bad they've gotten. So the good news is, again, if you're really into that kind of thing, come see me. I'll loan you the book. Trust me, I'm not going to need it anytime soon. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, by the way, a mystery, mysterion in Greek, is never a mystery as we understand it. It always has been revealed. The word is something that was not known or understood and now is. Now in English, we talk about a mystery as just the first part. But when you see mysterium here, no, it, it, it's been revealed. Okay? But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations. Once again, all the nations. He gets in that final inclusiveness, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. Amen. Faith 31. I think that's pretty close. Okay. Any questions? Yes. What's next on your agenda? Well, 
That's all I'm going to turn this off. Goodbye, guys.